0: ...and confuse me when people say, you know, Christianity, it's really just about being nice, being decent, helping others, you know, being tolerant, you know, rescuing animals from the shelter, you know, it's like that, that's sort of Christianity, just being a, a decent person. And, you know, when people say that, I just think, yeah, but, but what did you do with all the stuff in here about the guy who got nailed to the post, All the stuff that led up to it and all the stories about it, four Gospels that all climax in that story. And then the rest of the New Testament. Like, what did you do with that? Where did it go? And and we don't like to talk about it as much because it is. It's grisly and it's bizarre and it's uncomfortable and it's not really fitting for kind of suburban, sanitized, bourgeois sort of sensibilities. Um But, you know, something I want to think about with you today is that it wasn't really acceptable back then either. That even in the days when Jesus was crucified, to say that the Savior or the Messiah was impaled on a post would have been offensive and bizarre and incomprehensible to them in that day as well. And so I want to look with you at this text, and actually we're going to look at three texts this morning, but we're going to spend the most of our time here in Deuteronomy, and I want to take you to two New Testament texts that really kind of wrestle with this strange belief and this strange center of gravity in the Christian religion where, where it's a man nailed to a cross. Why, why would we celebrate that and sing so much about it as we've already done this morning? And so let us I just want to read these verses and we'll talk about it. Deuteronomy 21, 22-23. If a man guilty of capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him the same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So here's another one of those really kind of challenging Deuteronomy laws that seem so foreign to our modern life experience. A man dies and his body's hung on a tree, then you've got to bury him. Like, what is this talking about? So, so the basic law is if someone is executed and hung on a tree, then you have to bury them the same day. That's the basic law. So the idea here is someone has committed a capital offense. And, and again, we have to remember that in Israel, under the Old Covenant, the moral law, in other words, what's right and wrong, was the same thing as the, the civil law of the land because it was all part of God's covenant. So to break a moral law was also to be in violation of the civil law, which was really a rebellion against the covenant God. So that's why you have the death penalty here in some of these cases for law breaking, because it was all one theocracy. It was all rolled together. So, so the idea is someone commits a capital offense, they're put to death, they're hung on a tree. So I think we really need to focus on this idea of hung on a tree, because it comes back later in verse 23, that anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. What are we talking about here? What is this thing about hung on a tree? You know, when you read that, you might be tempted to think about, uh, I don't know, the old Western movies. You know, old Western, there's always a good hanging in the old Westerns. You know, my favorite Western of all time, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Clint Eastwood, Spaghetti Western. I mean, that is the classic. And, And that's a motif that's through the movie. There's this kind of play on hangings. That, that takes place in the movie and and you know you can see the scene There's the guy on the horse with his hands tied behind his back And one end of the ropes around his neck and the other ends tied to the tree branch and then someone you know Slaps the horse on the rump. ah, you know or they shoot the gun and the horse trots off and you know, there's the guy um, Hanging on a tree. I mean do you have that image Okay, that's not the image you should have when you read this text This is not the old west this is the old, ancient Near East. And so what it's talking about is actually something different than an Old West lynching from the movies. Look at look it again. So someone's guilty. They're put to death. And then after they're put to death, do you see that? The body is hung on a tree. And that word tree, that Hebrew word for tree, could mean pole or wooden post. See the Hebrew word for tree, and the Hebrew word for wood, and the Hebrew word for po- wooden pole is all the same word. So it's you can't tell if it's talking about a tree or a wooden post, or you know it could be any of those kinds of things. Uh, so, so so the idea here is a body somehow affixed or hung to a, a wooden post. We know from history that it was kind of a common practice in the ancient world to impale people. The Assyrians were known and feared throughout the ancient Near East for impaling people. You know, if if you went to war with Assyria and they captured you, they would put a post right outside the city where they captured you and they would stick you on it and impale you. I mean, it's it's really horrible, right? But, But that's the idea, is hanging bodies that have been killed on a post or hanging them or tying them to a post or impaling them or something like that. So it's like, why would you do that? That's so gross. That's so grisly. This is like a horror movie. Why was this done? What was the point? The point was complete and total humiliation of the defeated person. It's like not only are we going to kill you, but we're going to, you know, shame you so that everyone's last memory of you is this horrible, terrible thing. Uh, It it was a way of, of sort of the final and ultimate step of humiliation and defeat of an enemy. Uh, it is kind of what was done back in those days. Um, you know, human beings, human beings respect bodies. It's kind of a common human thing. Across all cultures, human beings respect bodies. Someone dies and we respect them. Different cultures do it different ways. Some cultures, you know, wrap, wash the body and wrap it up. Some bury it. Some cremate it. Some mummify it and put it in a tomb and put gold around it, but it's like it's kind of a human thing that we take care of of those who've died. We, we show respect for the body. You know, we're not like deer or coyotes. Or, you know, a bunch of deer are in the forest and one of the deer dropped dead. They don't like you know their hooves and dig a little hole and you know bring flowers over and drop it on the. It's like whoa, Bambi's dead. Hey, look, leaves. Let's go eat. I mean, it's they don't care. They just are on to the next thing. They're animals, but we're made in the image of god and so there's this idea of even honoring the image of god that is in the body so this is a human thing so to not honor the body but to make it an ugly horrible yucky grotesque display on a piece of wood is kind of like the ultimate insult the final rejection the last curse to let you know that you were a curse rather than a blessing it It's a terrible thing. Um, You you know, I was thinking about this. We kind of uh, wrestled with this as a country uh, a couple months ago, right? Remember when they finally uh, caught and killed Osama bin Laden, right? And, you know, we sent Ninja Team 6 in and they got him and they got him out on the helicopter, took his body out. And what was the big debate? Do they show the body or not? That was the, that was the question. I was like, "Should we show the body, should we, or should we show pictures of the body?" And and I would say, it's really kind of the same issue in sort of a digital modern way. Do you sort of rub the noses of of the enemies in it by making the last image that everyone saw of him a bullet-ridden body, you know, or do you not? And it's kind of that idea. Do you show the utter and final humiliation? So to put a body on a tree, or to suspend them from a pole, or to impale somebody is a final desecration of the person in an act of humiliation which is why the Romans, by the way, who you know in typical Roman efficiency did public execution and pole hanging in one thing it's much more efficient that way it's called a crucifixion but it's kind of like both of those things put together. that's why the Romans did it publicly. you know if you were crucified in Rome you were it was not in some back, lot or compound out of the way where they wouldn't gross people out like they crucify people like right on the road so that everybody would see that you know if we were living in the roman empire today if the south shore was part of rome like they would crucify people along route three and at all the exits so when you're driving and work in the morning you're like oh that's right don't mess with rome okay i will be a good roman citizen that was that was what they did So this is a public humiliation, a uh, civil shaming, a final curse and repudiation of a person to do that. But what I want you to see here is that this text actually goes further and says that the person whose body is hung from a pole or, or whatever exactly is being envisioned here is not just under a kind of public curse, but they are under God's curse. Look at verse 23. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You know the Hebrew phrase there is even more terse. The Hebrew if you want to translate the Hebrew phrase really literally that's translated here, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. The Hebrew phrase is literally this, it's something like cursed of God the hanged one. There's not even a verb. It's just cursed of God, the hanged one. It, it's almost like a math formula: cursed of God equals the hanged one, one who is hanged on a tree. Cursed of God. And as I was wrestling with this passage and trying to think, how in the world am I going to preach this? You know, what what are we going to say about this? And as I was troubled by this ancient practice of hanging bodies, actually, I'm even more troubled by that little phrase. Cursed of God. Like, the more I thought about that phrase, I thought, I think that's the most terrifying concept one can have pass through their mind. To be cursed by God. To have God leverage all of the resources of his omnipotence for somebody else's ruin and misery. That's terrifying. The more you think about it to have God against you. I don't know what you fear in life. And we all have our kind of worst case scenario fears that we don't even perhaps want to think about. I don't know what your worst case scenario fear is. Maybe it's a physical thing, a health thing, losing use of your body in some way, losing some capacity. Maybe your worst fear is utter financial collapse. Maybe your worst fear is losing somebody you love, a, a spouse or, you know, God forbid, even a child. I mean, probably as a parent, that would be my, my worst fear. would be my children. Um, you know, but, but I guess what I want to suggest is coming under the curse of God makes all those things seem microscopic. To have God against you forever. There's nothing worse than that. You can go through trials. You can go through financial collapse, or health problems, or relational disasters, or losing a loved one. But you know what? If you have God behind you, and if God is for you, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. If God is with you, and you know what? People do make it. Because they're like, I made it because God sustained me. And I talk to Christians who've been through Horrible things, and that's that's what they say. God brought me through. I don't know how I would have done this without God. Because if God is for me, I know that no matter how dark the valley, there is ultimately an upside, even if it's eternal life. You know, if I can just hang on till then, I know in the end it will be eternal blessing because God is for me. And if God is for me, that means all the power of His omnipotence is marshaled for my happiness and good in the end. And so I'm, I can I can make it. Because God is for me. But if God is against me, if I'm under His curse, what is there to be done for somebody under the curse of God? Like Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul if God is against you? If God says, 'I, I am against you, I oppose you, I will ruin you, you're done. And so this idea of being cursed by God and therefore, as getting back in the text here, Anyone who is hung on a tree, who's broken the covenant, who's received the punishment of the covenant curses, and is hung on a tree is cursed of God. They, they are kind of a physical embodiment of being rejected and opposed by God Himself. Now let's put the whole thing together. Can you see now why they wanted to bury this person quickly? Be sure to bury him the same day, verse 23, because anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The idea is bury him fast because we don't want God's curse hanging around our town. What a horrible, terrifying thing to see God's curse like right outside our city gate. Bury that quickly. And just to be really clear what the the logic of this verse is not. The logic of the verse isn't bury him quickly because they really shouldn't do that to a person. That's so mean to hang someone on a tree. At least give him the respect of a proper burial. That's not the logic. Because if that was the logic, the law would be don't hang people on trees. But the logic is: look, this guy is cursed, and and there's almost it's like there's something contagious, perhaps something spiritually infectious, something threatening, something numinously worrisome about this person on this tree because God's curse is among the people. And so they want to get the curse of God buried so that it doesn't kind of infect and ruin and desecrate the the ceremonially pure land of God, which is His holy land. What a terrible thing to be under God's curse that it's even a threat to those in near proximity. seems to be the idea behind it. And now can you see why the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been so incomprehensible to the people to whom Jesus ministered, who believed the law of God and believed the law of Moses. And so to go around preaching a Christ who was crucified would have made no sense. It was a bizarre thing. And the church knew this. I'd like us to look at a second text now that sort of keys in on this whole tension. It's in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, page 1128 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 1. So here's a second text now that it's really good if you're familiar with it because it's one of those texts that helps us understand the through line of the Bible, the major storyline of the Bible. So the early church understood this. The Apostle Paul understood that it was a troubling thing to be preaching a crucified Christ. So 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul writes, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. He said, but we preach Christ crucified. So Paul's saying, if you want to summarize my message everything I teach in just a little soundbite, Christ crucified. Go to Paul's website. There's his picture, and the little logo says, I preach Christ crucified. You know, that's like his little summary. It's not that everything Paul said was only about the cross. I mean, he taught on a whole bunch of things. But the point is that everything that Paul said either led to Christ or Came as a result of Christ, or somehow was under the umbrella of Christ crucified. It's as if all of Paul's teaching was a gold ring, and the diamond on the top was Christ crucified. So that everything he taught sort of held up and magnified, and impaled Messiah. That that was the message. So he could say, Look, let me just summarize it for you. This is my business card. Christ crucified. That's my message. And everything's either going to take you to that or flow out of that or help you to understand that. And he understood that that message would be preposterous to people. He says, we preach Christ crucified, verse 23, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Of course it was foolishness to Gentiles. I mean, that's what Rome did to losers, not to kings. Kings sat on thrones. Losers and rebels were crucified. That's foolish. How, how silly and stupid is that? But for the Jews, it was even worse. Because if you're a good Jew and you hold to the law of God, the law of God says, Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. And so Paul's saying, The guy hung on the tree is the Messiah. Like, that doesn't compute. It's not just that it's different, it's that it doesn't make sense. How can. The Blessed One of God, the Messiah, be the Cursed One of God? It does not make sense. How can the Chosen One of God, the Messiah, be the Rejected One? How can the Holy One of Israel be the one who shares the ultimate penalty for lawbreaking, which is to be killed and hung? You see what I'm saying? It's like you try to put the data into the computer program and it freezes and you get the blue screen. Just The whole thing shuts down. It doesn't work. So for a good, uh, law-abiding Jewish person, here's Rabbi Paul saying the Messiah was crucified and they just stumble over it. Boom. It doesn't make sense. So to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. Verse 24, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So out of Jews and out of Gentiles, there's this subset that's been called out, this strange group of people we now call Christians, who look at the impaled Savior and say, that is power and that is wise and I love that. It's like, What? So so, how does this work? If we're Bible-believing Christians and we believe that cursed is anyone hung on a tree, why would we worship and follow and love a Savior who was hung on a tree? It, it really doesn't make sense. So how do you reconcile all this? How do we put it all together? Why would we gather every week to sing and to commemorate and to hear speeches about this crucified Savior. I mean, maybe we talk about it once, but like, why, why would this be kind of the center of it? Why would our main message be summarized as Christ crucified? Well, let me take you to the third text in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. So, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Two books later, chapter 3. It's on page 1152. Why would we preach a message that makes no sense to the world? And by the way, Just so you know, the message of Christ crucified is never going to make sense to any culture. So don't expect that. You know, it's not a seeker-sensitive message. It wasn't in Paul's day. It's not in our day. We need to be sensitive to people. I don't want to be offensive as a human being. But let's just understand the gospel is always going to be offensive. That when we're faithful to the message of Christ crucified... At some point, you're going to get down to it and talk about Jesus on the cross and the world, to some degree or another, will be like, huh? That's, that's ridiculous. So how do we put all this together now? Let's, so this is Galatians 3. Here's the third text that will be helpful for you to be familiar with in order to understand the central message of the Bible. So you have Deuteronomy 21, cursed is anyone hung on a tree. You have 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, we preach the Christ who's been hung on a tree. And then Galatians 3 helps us understand why that would be good news. How does this all fit together? And here's the key. So I want to look at two verses in Galatians 3, verse 10 and then verse 13. Let me read verse 10 first. Verse 10 says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So here we have curse language, but now it's not cursed as anyone who's hung on a tree. Get this, cursed is anyone who relies on observing the law. So if you rely on observing the Old Testament law, if you put your hope in, your confidence in the fact that you keep kosher or observe the Sabbath or keep the law of Moses, or, or you know, if you say my confidence before God is in the fact that I'm a pretty good person and I try to do what God says, I I try to obey the Bible. And if that's your confidence, get this, you're cursed. What? (laughs) Huh? So if I try to do what God says, I'm cursed? So are you saying I should try not to do what God says? I'm so confused. Why am I cursed if I observe the law? It wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense in Paul's day. It doesn't make sense today. Even people today who don't really know the Bible or don't really who aren't Jewish or Christian or just kind of regular people, you know, people at Derby Street just tooling around. If if you were to able to strike up a conversation with them and sort of figure out like what is it you put your confidence in if there was a God and was a judgment day, where is your hope? And I bet most of them would give a similar answer to this. They would say something "Well, you know, be a good person and you know drive a Prius and you know." Rescue the dog from the shelter and do some community service and be nice and right it would be some it would be some kind of form of law or some system of conduct that's culturally defined whatever is in vogue today and it's like well as long as you try to aim for that stuff that's pretty good and that's probably the right track And, and if there is a god he'll be cool with that and then we get this all who are Rely on observing the law. All who follow the code of conduct are under a curse. That makes no sense. Why would you be under a curse for trying to do what God says? Because it is written, verse 10, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Ah, there's the problem. It's not that there's anything wrong with doing the right thing. It's that we don't do the right thing. And if I try to follow the law... If I just try to be a better person and I fail, then I come under the curse of the law. So what's implicit here, and I think this is important, so I really want you to pay attention to this, this because this is where our thinking about law is probably different from the way God thinks about law. We tend to think of the law as it's really a percentages game. As long as you have more good than bad, you're probably okay. As long as you're like 52, 48, good person to bad person, probably make it. As long as you're like 61 to 39, your bad deeds can't filibuster your good deeds. right? Uh, you know, we, we think of it kind of like scoring in baseball. As long as the Red Sox, you know the good team, <laughs> scores more points and runs than the Yankees, you know who epitomize evil, then you're okay. You win the game. As long as I did more good than bad, as long as I was more roughly a better citizen, But that's not how law works. The whole point of the law is you have to keep the law. It's more like figure skating or gymnastics. You start at 10 and you go down as you make mistakes. That's kind of how it is. Law is about keeping the law. And if you break the law, you come under the penalty of the law, no matter what your prior track record was. There's a penalty for breaking the law. The law works like this. Imagine if I decided one day to rob a bank. Because, uh, you know, who knows? I'm sick and tired of driving my wife's handed-down minivan. Uh, not that at age 40 I'm sick and tired of driving my wife's handed-down minivan, but there will be a collection at the end of the service. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> So I'm driving it around, and, uh, and I'm like, I'm sick of this. I'm going to have I'm gonna have myself a good old midlife crisis. So I decide, red Ferrari, that's what I want. And so I look it online, I'm like, boy, that's about 300 large uh, I'll rob a bank. So I go rob a bank, you know, and it takes about nine minutes. I stick up the bank, wave a gun around, take the money. And they catch me because while I'm a pastor, I don't really know how to rob banks. So (laughs) imagine now I go before the judge and, you know, it's like, how do you plead? And I say, well, Your Honor, I robbed the bank. I robbed a bank with a gun. But I don't think I should go to jail. I don't think I should do time. Why not? Well, because mostly I've been a good person. I mean, my whole life, I've really kept the law. I really have not been a lawbreaker. In fact, think about it this way, Your Honor. That bank robbery, what would that take? Nine minutes, ten minutes, twelve minutes? Like, how many minutes have I not been robbing banks? Hmm? So, like, the percentage of bank robbing minutes is so small that really I haven't robbed a bank. You know, statistically speaking, I've never robbed a bank. You know? (laughs) So, like, I don't think I should... I I should not have the curse of the law come upon me. The judgment of the law should not come upon me because, relatively speaking, I'm not a bank robber. You know, right? What would the judge say? I don't know. I mean, probably the judge would laugh his way... laugh you right out of the court and back to jail. I don't know. And we think that defense will work on the judgment day? With God's holy law? If that's ridiculous in our imperfect, half-baked human legal systems, what will it be like when we stand before the God of the universe, the Holy One, and we play that kind of monkey business logic with Him? Well, mostly good. God's going to be like, did you love me with your whole heart? not my whole heart. (laughs) Did you ever love me? You know, the, the heart of the law isn't thou shalt not murder. Oftentimes people jump to that as if that's the heart of the law. Well, I never murdered anyone. Okay. But the heart of the law is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. You could make the argument that apart from God's grace none of us have ever kept the law because nothing we've ever done has flowed from pure love for God and others. All of my motivations are twisted and bent with selfishness. And so even in my best days, apart from God's grace, it's not flowed out of love for God. You could make the argument that my track record is actually 100% zero, that I've never kept the law of God. So, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Cursed is anyone who relies on observing the law. I'm under the curse of God and there's a judgment day coming where I'll have to answer for my life of law-breaking, my fundamental orientation of law-breaking. And I'll be under the curse. Do you know what hell is? Hell is the place of being forever on the pole. It's the eternal hanging. The infinite shame. The forever curse. And then we come to verse 13. The most surprising, unexpected, wonderful news That people could never have made up. This is from God. This is amazing. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Look at Jesus on the cross again Look at it now through the lens of I am under the curse and now see that he was hanging on a tree not because he was cursed himself, but because he was bearing my curse. And all of a sudden, this bizarre message of an impaled Messiah, it catches you and it sparkles and you say, wait a minute, this is the best news I've ever heard. Because all of a sudden, God has done for me the one thing that I can't do for myself. I can't undo my curse. You know, sin is not like calories. It's not like if you eat the cake and you do some good deeds, it's like working out on the treadmill. You work it off. It doesn't work that way. I'm cursed. The only way for me to remove the curse is for Christ or someone else to take my curse. And to think that Christ was cursed for us in our place because... He was hung on a tree. And now it all makes sense. How could we worship a crucified Messiah? Because it was my curse that He bore. It was my hanging that He endured. It was my impalement He received. He was cursed for me in my place. And now all of a sudden, it's like the cross is the greatest thing ever. (laughs) You know? Now I... I want to sing about it. When I'm in church and they start singing about the cross and the Gospel story, like I have tears coming out of my eyes. Why am I crying about a guy who was impaled for me? Oh, it suddenly makes sense. You know? And now, I go to church and I see communion up front, and I don't think, oh, nuts, this service is 15 minutes longer. I think... I think... Finally, I get to stop doing dumb things with my time and I get to spend 15 minutes in silence savoring the Messiah. You know? And suddenly I go to a church service and during the church service they never sing about the cross and the preacher never talks about the cross even once. And I get done with the church service and I think I'm never going back there again. Why would I ever go to some place, you know, d- brush the dust off your feet, that doesn't talk about the cross? That's not even a church. You know. Your perspective changes. And suddenly you start reproaching yourself. And, and you start kind of criticizing yourself as a Christian when your love for the cross becomes cold. And you're like, what's happening to me? I, I think I'm drifting away because the cross doesn't sparkle. I must be getting out of touch with basic truths. I need to get back to the basics. And so everything flips. It's like that. It's not subtle. It's dramatic. It's not a process. It's a light switch going on from the cross is weird and gross and what's the point to this is the greatest thing I have ever heard and will ever hear. That God would love me so much He would send His Son to be impaled for my sins and bear my curse so that I could come under the blessing of God. You can't beat that news. It's the greatest thing ever. And the amazing thing is that my heart is so sleepy that I don't enjoy it more. And so Lord, wake me up and show me the glory of the cross. And so what is it for you? Is the cross weird and strange or is the cross the tree of life? What do you rely upon? Are you relying upon your good deeds? Are you relying upon your, you know, the fact that you've done this and that and and you're a pretty good person? Are you relying upon your religiosity? Are you relying upon what you've done in the church to help others? Or is your confidence and hope completely hung on Jesus? Is it Him that you put your hope in and what He's done for us on the cross? Where is your confidence before God? Put your confidence in Jesus, who was crucified and buried and raised and returning very soon. Let's pray.